back in the book of Revelation, so you can open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 9. It's been a month since I last preached from this book. And because we've been away from Revelation for so long, I want to take a couple minutes and reorient ourselves within the context of what's been going on. And so far we have seen four trumpet judgments blown. These are the judgments that signal the beginning of the end for apostate Jerusalem. You see, Israel has become a a wicked and apostate people. They They have turned away from their covenant with God. And they've turned it into an abominable means of self-justifying. They've rejected the new and living covenant in Jesus Christ, and they have persecuted his church. And so because apostate Israel has obliterated her covenant with God, God will obliterate her with covenant curses. And so let us not forget, though, that these judgments that we are reading about, that we are seeing, are raining down as the seven angels sound the seven trumpets in response to the prayers of the martyrs. When that seventh seal was broken, there was a 30-minute silence in heaven, a reflection of a ceremony held in Jerusalem's temple twice a day. If you were in the Bible study this morning, Eric talked about this when Zechariah was in the temple praying. A 30-minute silence of prayer in the temple each day. And what we're reading in Revelation chapter 8 is a reflection of that 30-minute silence. And so the trumpet judgments are God's divine answer to the saints' prayers. The saints' prayers uttered all the way back in chapter 6. The 30-minute silence in chapter 8, which symbolized God receiving the prayers of those saints. And then immediately, the trumpet judgments begin in response to those prayers. And so thus far, we have heard the blowing of four trumpets, as I have said. I'm just going to run through them really quickly. Trumpet one symbolized Israel is condemned, like Sodom, like Egypt. Trumpet two, the covenant is taken away from Israel and given to the nations. Trumpet three, Israel's once living waters have become a poisonous curse. And trumpet four, Israel's leaders were condemned and they would be snuffed out. Now I showed you how the symbolism works. That I can arrive at these four judgments when, we, when I preach through Revelation, uh, when I preach through those four trumpet judgments in Revelation 8. And that's what we're going to do again. We're going to, look, we're going to hold up Revelation We're going to look at it through the lens of the Old Testament and the words of Christ and the mind of the first century Jew. And when we do this, the symbolism is going to become obvious. I hope that it becomes obvious. So remember some things that Jesus said. He said to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders over the temple, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? On you will come all the righteous blood shed on the land. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. 
The days of vengeance had arrived upon that wicked generation in fulfillment to Jesus' words, to fulfill all that is written in Scripture and sounding in response to the prayers of the saints. We saw all these things by allowing the Bible to interpret the Bible. We're not going different places or different sources or news headlines. We're letting the Bible interpret the Bible, and that's what we're going to do today. The first four trumpets sound the beginning of the end for apostate Israel, and yet there are three trumpets still left. These three will bring the end of apostate Israel, of their Jerusalem. These three, these three will bring hell upon earth. Look at the very end of chapter 8, right there in verse 13. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the land, and at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Woes are declared that will bring hell to earth. So what we're going to do today is walk through the symbolism of chapter 9. I want to I try to open it up to you. You're going to see that it is horrible to behold. And we'll spend the majority of our time today doing this. Along the way, we're going to get into a lot of demonology. You're going to learn a lot about demons. So not a, a happy topic. And then at, at the very end, I'm going to conclude with two brief reasons why this chapter is important today. Now, I joked about this being a long sermon, and I intended that with the baptism and all. It is going to be a lot. We have a lot of ground to cover today. Um, I didn't plan on that with a baptism, but God's providence. Praise God. Let's read this chapter, chapter 9 of Revelation. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. 
The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality. Or their theft. Oh, Father, won't you give us eyes to see what you have for us in this passage? Illumine our hearts to receive your word. And I pray that we would, we would be changed by it, sobered by it, and if by grace, encouraged by it. Do these things this morning through your word, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So that was a crazy passage, right? It is. It's deeply symbolic. It's complex. Its imagery is wild and vivid. And it is imagery. It's a vision. It's not meant to be taken literally. Even those who claim that they interpret Revelation literally do not interpret this passage literally. And I'll, I'll show you why as we go. M- many have seen helicopters and and military tanks and modern nations in this, but none of them are literally here in Revelation 9. So let us not fall into the trap of interpreting Revelation with symbols that make sense to us in the 21st century. It was not written to people in the 21st century. Rather, let us understand the symbols according to the first century Jewish reader to which this was written. They're the primary audience. So what are the symbols they would be hearing? How would they be understanding revelation that was delivered to them? And again and again, Jesus told us that all these things would come upon this generation. So let us look for fulfillments within that generation. Literally. Additionally, let's not forget how revelation opens. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must take place 2,000 years in the future, must soon take place. Blessed is the one who reads this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. These are the words that we can take literally. The book contains things that would soon take place, not thousands of years in the future, The days of vengeance were upon that wicked and apostate generation in Jerusalem. And these words find their fulfillment in 70 AD. Only a few short years after John wrote them. Within one generation of Jesus' prophecies. So with this context in mind, let's dive into the complexity, vividness, the symbolism in chapter 9. The fifth trumpet sounds, and a woe has come. 
You see this in verse 1. A star already fallen. Here is a symbol of a fallen angel. A demon. It is a demon with great authority because he's given a key. A key that opens up the bottomless pit, releases what's in the bottomless pit. The powerful demon does have a name. And it And the name is given in verse 11. We are told that the name of this powerful demon is Abaddon and Apollyon. And who has given Apollyon the key to the bottomless pit but God himself? God gives the key to open the bottomless pit. In chapter 1, we saw Jesus holding the keys to death in Hades. But this key... In chapter 9 is a different key. We all know what death is. If not, we soon will. Hades is the symbolic place of the dead. But the bottomless pit is another place, a different place. Perhaps there's a footnote in your Bible after that phrase, bottomless pit. It directs you to the actual word, the abyss. It's the place of the demonic. The nothingness in which banished demons dwell. So you remember that scene where Jesus casts a legion of demons out of a, of a man who's possessed and go into a, a herd of pigs? The demons begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. They did not want to go there. Why? Because demons are hell-bent on destruction. They love to kill, steal, and destroy. But in the abyss, there's nothing to destroy. It's all ruin, and so they hate it. They don't want to go there. It is their hell. Indeed, it is hell. The abyss and the bottomless pit is another way to talk about hell. And from the abyss, we see in verse 2, rises a great smoke. That's language directly out of Genesis. When God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, there we read, The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire. Behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. This language is serving two purposes here in Revelation. First, to show that destruction reigns in the abyss. It's been destroyed. All has burned. And then secondly, it's showing us another link between Jerusalem and Sodom. For the smoke of Sodom is about to rise from the ashes of Jerusalem. Jerusalem has become like Sodom. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then... From the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth, and they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So the smoke that's that's billowing out of the abyss like a great furnace turns out not to be smoke at all. But it morphs, it changes into this terrible cloud of strange, terrible locusts. Locusts. Locusts that were once the plague that God brought upon Egypt. Another link between Jerusalem and Egypt. Jerusalem has become like Sodom, like Egypt. 
and locusts were explicitly stated as a covenant curse for unfaithfulness in Deuteronomy 28.38. But these locusts of Revelation 9 are no ordinary locusts. Should be obvious, right? They sting like scorpions. Locusts do not sting like scorpions. Also, these locusts are told not to harm grass, but people. And what natural locusts refuse to eat green things? They are not natural. They are supernatural. And what we are seeing is a demonic horde wrapped in the symbolism of covenant curses. These locusts issue forth from the abyss. And God is letting loose demons upon apostate Israel. Demons! Verse 3 says that these locusts have the, the locusts from the abyss have the power of scorpions. And I want to show you how Jesus links demons and scorpions. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Serpents and scorpions linked to demons. There's a symbolic association. And every Jew understood that. To them, it wasn't a strange thing. That's why Jesus speaks in such a way. It was natural for them to receive it. And Jesus is not encouraging Christians to handle snakes or scorpions, for that matter. Rather, Christ is encouraging his followers with a new reality that has dawned upon the earth. Demons do not have authority over us. They cannot harm us who believe, who are Christ's. They can never destroy us. Amazingly, amazingly, Christ has given authority over demons to his church to destroy the power of the enemy. And he calls us conquerors and rulers. Look at verse 4. In accordance with Jesus' words in Luke 10, with the heavenly command that we see in Revelation 9, demons are not permitted to hurt the sealed. You see that? Demons are not permitted to hurt the sealed or the elect. They cannot touch the elect. This is that new reality. Because if God is for us, then who can be against us? No demon No height, no depth. No height, no depth, no demon, no power, no angel, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. These demons have had their teeth cut when it comes to the elect. Even a whole demonic horde storming out of the abyss can do nothing, nothing to the elect. But in 70 AD, there were no believers left in Jerusalem, only those of that wicked generation. They have hated God, they have killed their Messiah, they have persecuted his church. Now come the demons. Now come their destruction from hell to hell. Verse 5, they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. 
And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. It says that the demonic horde will come upon Jerusalem for five months. Demons are not permitted to kill directly, but to torment. And the demonic torments will be so bad that the possessed will long for death. They will want escape through death, but none will be found Do you know what? Jesus talked about this too as he carried the cross to Golgotha. He said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. People will long for death. And less than 40 years later, within that same generation, just as Jesus prophesied, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Roman armies in 70 A.D. Do you know when they arrived in 70 A.D.? Right before Passover. As that city was swollen with all of the Jewish pilgrims from all over the diaspora in Jerusalem. They arrived just before Passover. That's April. Do you know when the city was destroyed? The ninth day of Av, August. Five months. You see the timestamp right there in verse 5. Five months. The demonic horde was allowed to torment the Jews for five months. When the Jews were completely surrounded by Rome, when the siege was on, something changed within the walls of Jerusalem. It got crazy in there. A demonic madness overtook the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I hardly have time to go through all of the accountings of that. Josephus, a historian and a Jew, once a religious leader, records what happens for us. And if you want to go through all of that, read his Wars with the Jews. Fascinating. But I will in summary, tell you about some of the things that began to happen during the siege inside of the walls. There were a lot of prophets, false prophets, that arose. And at any other point in Jewish history, they would have seen the the patently false nature of these prophets and stoned them. They were obviously false. But the Jews followed after them in the hundreds and the thousands, and many of them perished in the process. There was an outbreak believe it or not, of transgenderism and disgusting sexual immorality. People executed one another on baseless accusations and crazed mobs relentlessly attacked one another. Thousands were slaughtered as Jewish factions warred against one another and they burned their own food supply, plunging them into a deep, desperate famine. They ate what no humans should eat. Some ate their own children. Fathers slaughtered their families, attempting to save them. God's graces had been withdrawn from this once holy city. The spirit and the glory of God replaced with destructive spirits of madness. This is the place on earth where heaven was supposed to touch earth, right? Now it has become hell on earth like Sodom, like Egypt. Such it was for five horrific months. Verse 7, 
in appearance, these, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Remember, it's a vision. It's not meant to be read literally. We're being given symbolic images. And if we lose sight of that symbolism, which works, which is at work in apocalyptic literature all throughout the Bible, then we might be, able, we might be tempted to see Apache helicopters here like some have claimed. But I assure you, John is not looking into the distant future and seeing helicopters and then struggling with his, his ancient language to put it into some reference point. That's not what is happening. Instead, John is looking backwards. And he's employing apocalyptic language that was first used by Joel. Do you remember when we studied Joel? We heard a lot of this exact same language. Here are the similarities. For a nation of locusts has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. Or from Joel chapter 2, their appearance, the locust is talking about here, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run, as with the rumbling of chariots they leap on the tops of mountains. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? That was originally written by Joel about a locust plague hundreds of years before Christ. And now John is taking that same language and employing it for this demonic horde breaking upon Jerusalem. Locusts with lion's teeth, That's a symbol of their ferocity and savagery. They sting like scorpions. And I already showed you that there there is a, a link biblically between demons and scorpions. And they wear crowns. Why do they wear crowns? Because again, of what the Bible says, referring to demons as rulers, powers, and authorities in spiritual places. Paul writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. The demonic locusts wear crowns because they are spiritual rulers and powers. When they possess a person, they rule that person. The locusts have have human faces, which symbolize evil intelligence, cunning. Unfortunately for Jerusalem, these demonic locusts possess a terribly destructive intelligence. In verse 8, it says that they have the hair of women. That's got to be the strangest one. What's that about? Yeah, it is strange and it's terrible. It's about sexual immorality. People possessed by an evil spirit, they're ruled by that spirit, and then they take on that spirit's wickedness. Listen to this passage from Josephus' Jewish Wars, book four. It's stunning. It's what happened inside of Jerusalem during the siege. 
With their insatiable hunger for loot, they ransacked the houses of the wealthy, murdered men and violated women for sport. They drank their spoils with blood, and from, more, from mere uh, satiety they shame, and shamelessness gave themselves to effeminate practices, plaiting their hair and putting on women's clothes, drenching themselves with perfumes and painting their eyelids to make themselves attractive. They copied not merely the dress, but also the passions of women, devising in their excess of licentiousness unlawful pleasures in which they wallowed as in a brothel. Thus they entirely polluted the city with their foul practices. Yet though they wore women's faces, their hands were murderous. They would approach with mincing steps, then suddenly become fighting men, and whipping out their swords from under their dyed cloaks, they would run every passerby through. Horrifying, purely demonic. Josephus knew nothing of Jesus' words or John's. The Jews were possessed by demons and they took on these demonic attributes. They practiced transvestism and sexual immorality as symbolized in the demonic locust with women's hair. In verse 9, the locusts wear breastplates, symbolizing their invulnerability once upon a person, their strength. So you combine that with more imagery from Joel that we're seeing here, another mention of scorpions in verse 10, and the whole picture comes into focus. Crystal clear focus. This is a demonic horde sent in judgment by God himself upon apostate Israel. And one more clue. Natural locusts have no king. They're governed purely by weather patterns and instincts. But this demonic horde does have a king. In verse 11, they have a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is Apollyon. That Greek word and Hebrew word, they mean the same thing. Destroyer. This is none other than Satan himself, the great destroyer, and he has been given the key to the abyss, and he is the one opening it, opening it to unleash hell on earth. He is the one who brings destruction. He is the king of demons. But remember, he had to be given that key. He did not have the authority to bring hell until God said so. So though he's the one who's opening the key, it's God who's behind it, who's doing it. Though Satan is powerful, though he commands a great and terrible horde, he is limited. He is subject to the will of God. And as we will see later in this book, Satan is bound. But here in Revelation 9, Satan is not bound, but unleashed and madness falls upon apostate Israel, and they plunge themselves into the deepest, darkest hell on earth. That is conceivable. Let's remember some more of Jesus' words. So important for what's going on here. Jesus said, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, like an abyss, seeking rest, but finds none. 
Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and it brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be for this evil generation. Jesus came to Israel and he swept the house and he cast out all kinds of demons. But after Israel rejected both him and his church, all that was left was a tidy house with no one to secure it. Revelation 9 is the picture of evil spirits, sevenfold that original number, making the last state of Israel far worse than the first, just as Jesus said it would be for this evil generation. And that is just the first of the three woes. Look at verse 12. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then I heard the sixth angel blow his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. It's important to note, almost as a parenthesis here, that though these trumpet judgments are coming in a series, the fulfillment of those prophecies are not bound to the same sequential ordering. The first four trumpet signal covenant curses that occurred simultaneously as a result of rejecting their Messiah. The fifth and sixth trumpets come next, but they come together. They emerge together. They're dependent on one another for fulfillment. And then the seventh will come at the end. But remember, always remember as we're reading through Revelation, that this whole book is delivered by the Alpha and Omega who was and is and is to come, who is not constrained by time in the way that we are, nor must his prophecies be. Verse 13, we see the golden altar. We saw it in chapter 8. It's the altar of incense. Multiple times in Revelation, the incense of this altar is equated with the prayers of the saints, rising up to God as a pleasing aroma. So again, verse 13 the trumpet judgments of God are being linked to the prayers of the saints, for it is from the altar of incense that the judgments are issuing forth. And it's notable that the Euphrates River is mentioned here. The Euphrates River was the north, northern border, sort of northeastern border of the promised land. It's the border that Assyria crossed when they brought destruction to the ten northern tribes. And when Babylon crossed, when they went and brought destruction to Jerusalem in the temple, it's from across the Euphrates that the Persians ruled Judea, oftentimes oppressively. And so an invading army coming from the north, crossing the Euphrates, became a symbol of God's judgment upon Israel. From Jeremiah 46, that day is the day of the Lord God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on all his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord God of hosts holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. In fact, invasions from across the Euphrates became such a symbol of judgment that they, the Bible oftentimes doesn't even say Euphrates, it just says the river. Behold, 
The Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Isaiah was not talking about Assyria. These were symbols from the river of coming judgment. Indeed, we see it in Revelation 9. A vast army coming from the Euphrates, bringing judgment and destruction upon Israel. And here we might be tempted to suddenly move into literal interpretation. Or, it's not literal, but attempts at it. Some see modern-day Russia and China allied coming across the Euphrates and invading modern-day Israel. Do you know, a few hundred years ago, they thought it was the Islamic Ottoman Empire. But none of that has anything to do with that wicked generation upon which Jesus said the days of vengeance were coming. So we could be tempted then to think that it was the 10th legion of the Roman army stationed by the Euphrates River called to join the vast army gathering in Galilee and Judea, the vast Roman army. Didn't that happen in the time frame Jesus is talking about? But even that would be to miss the point of what's going on here. It's a point that no first century Jewish reader would have missed. God was bringing judgment upon Israel through invasion, which is probably the loudest covenant curse that the Old Testament gives us. Judgment through invasion. We find these covenant curses detailed in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is where we find the covenant curses. And I'm just reading you a little bit about the invasion section of that. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. They shall besiege you in all your towns under your high and fortified walls in which you trusted, and they will come down throughout all your land. Your land. So because of Assyria, Babylon, Persia, the Euphrates River becomes a symbol of these covenant curses outlined in Deuteronomy 28. Now the army is Rome, and God has prepared them for this very moment. Verse 15. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. As God does, he preordained the exact moment that this army would come, bringing their destructions, bringing to ruin the abominations present inside of Israel. I'm not going to get into it today, but Daniel's 70 weeks point to this moment. The Father, God the Father, knew the day and the hour that it would happen. It is as he has ordained it. Jesus said, concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And then immediately after that, he says, 
For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And see how the coming of the Son of Man here is associated with the sweeping away of the wicked, the destruction of the wicked. The Father had ordained the day and the hour, or as Revelation says, the hour, the day, the month, and the year, which Israel would be swept away by a flood of invaders. This was the Son of Man coming in judgment, which is how the book of Revelation began when it gave us its purpose statement. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, And every eye will see him. All the tribes of the land will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. God comes in judgment, and his name is Jesus. And the invading army come in vast numbers, his army. Verse 16 says that they are 10,000 times 10,000. Literally, that number is 200 million, but we shouldn't read it literally as we are not reading much else of this literally. It's an enormous number, symbolic, sort of like our number gazillion. The point is that this army is enormous. Its aim to destroy cannot be stopped. And this vast symbolic number is an echo of many other places in Scripture where symbolic large numbers are used. Here's one. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. The sixth trumpet summons a vast army arriving at a preordained moment, and this is Christ's hammer of judgment upon the city that has rejected him, their Messiah. Verse 17, And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and the fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of horses is in their mouths and their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The horses of the army have lion's heads. Even the most literal interpreters do not interpret that literally. Some see military tanks. I see a biblical pattern of apocalyptic language. And for the second time in chapter 9, the lion is a symbol of ferocity and savagery as it is throughout the Old Testament. The breastplates of the cavalry are colored like the plagues they propagate. Red like fire, yellow like sulfur, and a deep sapphire blue that is almost black. Symbolizing a terrible hellish smoke. So see how the colors mirror what the lion horses spew? Verse 17. Fire, smoke, sulfur. Apocalyptic in nature. These are the very disasters that God rained down upon Sodom, which we had previously read for its destruction. Again, Jerusalem becomes like Sodom. God does not rain down this disaster from the sky, though. Not this time. Instead, he pours it forth from the Euphrates, fire, sulfur, smoke. These horses have the power of serpents in their tails. Remember again when Jesus was talking to the legion of demons? 
or rather when he was talking about demons, he used the symbolism of snakes and scorpions. The horses have snakes as their tails. They are, they are being driven by the demonic. David Chilton sums it up like this. An innumerable army is advancing upon Jerusalem from the Euphrates, the origin of Israel's traditional enemies. It is a fierce, hostile, demonic force sent by God in answer to his people's prayers for vengeance. In short, this, is the, this army is the fulfillment of all the warnings in the law and the prophets of an avenging horde sent to punish the covenant breakers. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or talk or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The ESV, English Standard Version, and the New international versions, those translations, throw us for a loop when they say that the rest of mankind was not killed. Mankind is not the best translation there. It makes it sound like this is a global thing. But the King James Version, the Holman Christian Bible, the New Living Translation, and, and many others do a better job. They say the rest of the men were not killed, or the rest of the people were not killed. In other words, those in Jerusalem, we see in verse 20, those in Jerusalem not killed by the ruin of war, they refuse to repent. They dig in their heels. And you would think that after all of this terror, all of these obvious covenant curses, would not some turn back to God? Would not some see this wanton barbarity and go to God for salvation, returning again to Him to be their refuge? But not a single one did. There's even a moment where Josephus, who's with the Romans, approaches the walls of Jerusalem, his own people inside, and he cries out to them, repent. You know that in the past, if God were on your side, if, you, if God was fighting for you, you would be the conquerors. But they threw sticks at him, and they shot arrows at him. No one in this city repented. On the Jews went, worshiping their idols. And worship of idols is worship of demons. Paul writes, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. The Jews that had rejected Jesus had become pagan. Still they are offering sacrifices on that altar. But do you know who those sacrifices are going to now? Demons. Worshiping idols is worshiping demons, and indeed, it is to have fellowship with demons. During the siege, the, the Jews did not build statues of gold and silver in Jerusalem. They were worshiping their lusts, their greed, and above all, their self-righteousness. They wanted no part of this Messiah. Instead, they plunge themselves into worship of demons. Truly, has this not become the synagogue of Satan, which we saw in chapter 2? And so God gave them over to their demons, demonic hordes possessing those inside and demonic armies on the outside. This surely has become hell on earth. 
Still they would not repent. Happy they were to let their hearts harden as they hung over the yawning abyss. Though some may have escaped war's destruction, the abyss is patient. Its eternal destruction will one day swallow them whole. As Jesus said, how would this generation escape being sentenced to hell? Does this not highlight for us how terrible is rejection of Jesus? How awful to turn away from God? And for when we, when we turn away from God, from Christ, we turn to something else. And that other thing is demonic. There's nowhere else to go. You're either towards Christ or towards demons. And the idols that we turn to are not usually statues. They come in a lot of other forms. So the first thing that we can remember today is that we can fashion nearly anything into idols. And we do. And when we do, we participate with demons. So you may have fellowship with demons if you devote yourself to your appearance or your health or your job, if your family eclipses obedience to God, then that's demonic. And certainly, when you look at those images online or you eat without restraint, or you habitually choose Netflix over prayer, that's demonic. And all who worship demons, how will they escape being sentenced to hell? That picture of Jerusalem is a picture of you if you are a demon worshiper. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? But we do have an answer through Christ, crucified and risen. The second thing to remember is that Christ has triumphed over Satan. The powers that once ruled over us have been broken, they have been shattered, and we have a new Lord now. Praise God. Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. The power of darkness that once gripped your soul has been cast aside by the brilliant glory and beauty of Christ crucified and risen. In Jesus, you are forgiven, brothers and sisters. You are forgiven. Praise God. In Jesus, you are righteous. You are a son or daughter of the Most High. What shall separate you from the love of God? No demon can harm you. No sin can rule you. No abyss will swallow you. You are Christ's forever. And no one can pluck you from his mighty hand. So if there are, let us not forget though, that these glorious realities be true. Let us not forget the picture God is giving us in Revelation 9. Let them serve us as a warning, terrible as it is, Turn from God is to turn towards demons. 
just as to turn out the lights is to be plunged suddenly into darkness. And this is a darkness to fear. So if there are secret sins that you cling to or self-righteousness that grips you, then turn. Turn while you can. Come back to the cross and see your Savior there dying for these very sins in agony. And through his agony, you have forgiveness. And you've been released from these things. So lift these burdens and nail them to that tree and walk away free. Satan has no hold on you. You are not a slave. You are free. You are not from the old Jerusalem, but a new one. For the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. Satan works to unite hell and earth. But he is on a short leash. For the conqueror, Jesus Christ, is forever uniting heaven and earth. And through all things, reconciling heaven and earth to himself through Christ. For you who believe in Jesus this morning, the freedoms of heaven are streaming into today. Be free. You are free. No demon rules you. Father God, we praise you for this great and glorious reality that we are free, that we are forgiven, that we are your sons and daughters, that you have made us overcomers. And let us not forget also the horrors of Revelation 9 and what happens to those who do not repent. Help us, Father, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for we know that it is you who wills and works in us to glorify you. We cling to you, we depend on you, and we know that without you, we too would be swept into the abyss. And so it's in Jesus' name that we, that we rivet ourselves to, give our lives to, and pray even in this moment. Amen.